so excited. Today's Palm Sunday, and uh, it's kicking off Holy Week for us. And you know, the, what I love about uh, Holy Week is that regardless of your tradition, uh, whether you grew up Catholic or Protestant, you're in some sort of mainline or charismatic, or no matter where we're at, literally millions of people this week are going to be celebrating and remembering uh, the resurrection and the death of Jesus Christ. And what I love about that is that there's millions of people all around the world are doing that. Uh, no matter where, what church you're from, no matter what you're doing, we're going to be talking about the death and resurrection of Jesus and the implications that that has. And so we've been doing that through a, a series called Pray for One over the last few weeks and how, really the implications of all that um, engage in. But real fast before we get there is we want to, uh, d- I definitely want to remind you of tonight's worship night. And the reason why I want to do that is because uh, the worship night tonight at uh, 6.30 will, with child care, I just want to make sure I say that, with child care, um, even if you want to come sit in a cafe and just check your kids into child care, that's fine too. Don't t- I'm just kidding. Don't tell the child care workers I said that. Um, no, it, but the reason why I want to do this is because over the last few months, we've been, uh, the last couple months, we've been talking about what the next three to five years of our church looks like. And we want to gather together, not just in our heads about that, but we want, we want to gather together in our hearts as well. And we want to talk about what it's like to worship a God that really cares about where we're at and where we're going. Uh, we want to do that personally. We want to do that communally. We're going to do that missionally as well. Uh, we definitely want to be here tonight. Let's fill this place and, and hang out together as we kick off Holy Week. Let's remember the death and resurrection of Jesus together through worship. And I think it would be a lot of fun to do that. So looking forward to seeing all of you. I see every single one of you. So I'll see all of you tonight. Uh, we're looking forward to that. Also, today's Palm Sunday, obviously. So you got palms on the way in. The fastest cross winds go. Just kidding. Um, yeah, I know we'd all take care of that in different ways, but looking forward to seeing how God does that. Lastly, last little thing of, of last little piece of information. The last couple weeks of teaching has largely been influenced by a friend of mine named Steve Carter. Um, Steve Carter wrote this book, uh, the Invita- This Invitational Life. And so we've been reading a book called Pray for One over the last few weeks by a, another friend of mine, Bo Chansey. But um, this book is a great supplement to what, um, uh, what he's doing. Steve really is an excellent way of bringing together the narrative of the Bible, the sort of the meta- narrative of the Bible and our daily life to create a sort of invitational life, not just an invitational church, but for you to have an invitational life. And really, what does that mean? And how do you engage with that? So definitely uh, look into this book, uh, This Invitational Life by Steve, if you want to dive into um, some, more, uh, some more on this topic. But um, Palm Sunday, for me, um, always, uh, always kind of presents a gap. Palm Sunday presents a gap like this. It presents a gap. On one side, you have uh, a, a group of people that have a preference for what Jesus wants to do and what Jesus should be doing while he's here on earth. And then on the other side is, is Jesus. Now, you never want to be on the other side of the gap from Jesus, right? But on the other side, you have Jesus, and, and you have God's purpose. And a lot of times, our preference and God's purpose, they don't line up. And Palm Sunday always has that sort of reminder for me. It always reminds me that when my purpose for what God should do and, what my pre- and, and God's purpose for what he is going to do should be making their way to becoming aligned. And Palm Sunday, in Luke, you, know, you read about the story in Luke 19, is all about Jesus triumphantly enter, entering into Jerusalem on a donkey. Zechariah, the book of Zechariah, talks about a Messiah that would be coming from the east, that would come, on to, come in through this white come on this white horse into the city, will create massive amounts of victory and will restore all order to the country of Israel. 
And they had this thing deep in their bones, this understanding that the Messiah would do this. And, and Jesus comes through that gate, but he comes on a donkey and reverses the whole idea of what it's like to be desiring and longing for a Messiah. Completely reverses it. And so now instead of them seeing victory and king, they see uh, Jesus and this declaration of peace, this declaration of shalom, that everything's going to be brought together under the name of Jesus, that he's coming to restore his kingdom. He's coming to bring his kingdom, not restore the kingdom that we have in mind. It's our story. It's our story. We have this story. We have this desire of how things should look like, what things should be, that the next political leader, the next boss, the next, no matter what, is going to come and is going to make everything better and he's going to restore the way the world should work. And Jesus just has never been in that business. And we have this gap between our preference and our purpose. And we even do that just because we're humans, we tend to dichotomize our views even with evangelism. And in the church is this desire to tell and share of the good news of Christ because that's who we are, that's who we're created to be. As humans, we want to tell everyone about everything. Why? We talked about this last week. Why do we want to tell everyone? Because we love our mechanics. Unless you don't have a mechanic you love, then you don't tell anybody. But if you love your mechanic, you tell them about it. If you have a construction company that you love, you tell them about it. You, when you have a coffee shop, bless the Lord, you tell people about it, right? And so we want to do something with this good news. We want to engage our culture with good news because we're human. But often in the church world, like, we get covered and engaged with this idea that there's really only one way to do it. And Paul talks about this. This guy named Paul talks about this to his friend named Timothy. Timothy's leading a church. And he's saying, Timothy, you need to be doing the work of an evangelist. You need to be doing the work of an evangelist. And Timothy, when, when you're leading this church, this church, in order to be healthy, in order to do work that's good, in order to have fruit, you need to be doing the work of an evangelist. If you throw that verse on the screen, 2 Timothy 4, verse 5, it says this. It says, as for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering and do the work of an evangelist to fulfill your ministry. Now look, if that was the game plan for ministry success, like if that is the next church growth book, it would not sell a thing. Always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. I'm going to name my next book, Endure Suffering. Always do the work of an evangelist to fulfill your ministry. You want to have a healthy church. You got to do some of these things. And so when we're in this gap of, of preference and purpose, we tend to dichotomize other areas of our life, and, and that often is what happens when it comes to evangelism. Now, what Timothy, what, what Paul's talking about here when he's talking to Timothy to be an evangelist. An evangelist in the first century was a herald. A herald was someone that came back from, victory, from war to declare the victory of the nation. Right? And so there's even this one story of a herald coming back from war, and he had to run 
24 hours straight, all the way back from the battle, all the way back from the battle, gets to the city, says, we won, and then dies. That's his purpose, that was his purpose in life, to come back from this battle and declare the victory that the kingdom has won. And so we say, he's taking this image and say, that's the work you need to do about the victory of Jesus. That's the work that you need to do in order to be, fulfill your ministry. You need to do that uh, as you engage with the culture. Right? You need to do this work of evangelism and herald the victory that Christ has through his death and his resurrection. But the church over the last hundred years has been doing that in one of two ways. We've been very dichotomized. The entire church, the big C church, has been dichotomizing this very much over the last number of decades. And it's been happening in one or two ways, and there's really two kingdoms on it. First, there's Jesus saves, the Jesus saves camp. And then there's the Jesus serves camp. The Jesus saves camp, um, they kind of, they, they, they emphasize the name of God, Yeshua, it's God saves, Joshua, Yahweh, God, the, the name of God is Yeshua, God saves. And they're all about proclamation. Man, they just want to proclaim the good news. Often you see them uh, on the way to Fenway Park with a sandwich board. You know what I'm talking about, everyone? Everyone, everyone bring their pocket bullhorn with them to church today? Are we, can I get an amen? All right, that's sweet. Right? You have this proclamation. They often talk about where are you going when you die? What are you going to do? If, the, if, you get, if you walk out this, I remember this very vividly growing up a lot of times, Sunday night service, right? You'd have someone come in. If you were to walk outside this door right now and get hit by a bus, do you know where you go? Right? And you, and you think about that. That'll wake you up. That'll, that'll shock some life into us on a Palm Sunday morning, wouldn't it? And they talk about the cross and Jesus' death and how what it create the new world that it creates. They often will emphasize the truth and morality, the truth when it comes to living a certain way, the truth when it comes to living in the kingdom, and the truth of the Bible and engaging God with truth so that we can have a healthy life. And they'll often use the, the imagery of hell, making sure you don't want to go to hell, you want to go to heaven. And Matthew, they often use the, 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 the scripture, Matthew 28, if you throw it up on the screen. Matthew 28 um, says, Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth, therefore go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You got Matthew 28, the great commission, one of the last things Jesus tells his disciples to do. But that's, so that's one side. But then on the other side, you have this Jesus serves camp. If you go back to that graph, you, and they really emphasize with the, the name of God, Emmanuel, which means God with us. And they like to build relationships, and, and they like to demonstrate the actions of the gospel. They like to, you know, you, know, you want to be able to um, you know, preach the gospel, and when necessary, use words. Right? How many have heard that before? Right? They want to demonstrate. They want to live a life of ethic. And they often talk about life. Yeah, you, no matter what, you're going to go somewhere when you die, but what is this life about? What is the purpose of our life? And if you were to have purpose, what would it look like and what would you do? The life you're living now is kind of boring, but the life of Christ will, will create all sorts of new life for you. They talk about resurrection and, and, and that the implications of the resurrection are massive where new life can come in. And they talk about grace, that there's, you know, everyone's living a difficult life and everyone's engaging with different things, but the grace of God will allow you to settle. And they love talking about heaven, uh, heaven's coming down to earth and that there's a new reality right here in the midst of this one. 
You know what, this is so polarizing, even right here in this room, I've talked to many of you, and you fall into one of these camps. And you say, well, no, 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 Jesus is all about demonstration and serving and mission. You say, you know what, pastor, you just need to preach the gospel more. You just need to say the things some more. You need to preach more. Tell people the truth. And we all fall into one of these two camps. And Jesus serves, they often use the, the verse from Matthew 25. I won't read the whole thing, but um, it talks about uh, how, how the, the king comes back and says, if you were thirsty and you, and you gave me a drink, and if I was needing clothes and you gave me clothes, you were doing these things to Jesus. And so my question is for you today, what camp do you fall in naturally, normally? Because what happens is our preference will come out And often in church world, we judge the other side. We judge ourselves based off our missional impulse. But you know what Jesus came to do? He came to do both. He came to do both. And he doesn't call it saving, although he does. He doesn't call it serving, although he does. He calls it loving. He calls it loving. And this is what he says in John 3. He says, for this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world not to judge the world but to save the world through him. And so the way God loves is through saving and the way God loves is through serving. But even right here in the midst of this verse, you see both. You see a sending missional God giving his life on behalf of other people. But you have this proclamation that there's new life that you need to believe in him. You get get approached in grace but then confronted with the truth. Because love is the tension between grace and truth. Love is the tension between grace and truth. And so what I love about praying for one is praying for one, this simple yet bold prayer, will give you the opportunity to not only proclaim the gospel and the love of God, but also to demonstrate the love of God. It's going to give you this opportunity to do both. And this is what this prayer is. God, give me one person to share your love with today. God, give me one person to share your love with today because love is this tension between grace and truth. Jesus does both. And so instead of being dichotomized about it, instead of saying, okay, saving camp over here, let's make sure we tell everyone how, 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 how much truth we need to know, and instead of being Jesus serves over here and we just, you know, we need to talk less and do more, we really need to proclaim the love of God through both proclamation and demonstration. And instead of having two kingdoms about it and really fighting for our preference, we need to find our home in God's purpose as he's engaging the world. And this story is really only singular. There's one story. And so if you take a journey with me, I'm going to preach the entire Bible in the next 10 minutes. Because I believe we need to understand the entire story. 
If we want to both demonstrate and proclaim, we need to understand the story that God is telling. It's not Matthew 25 versus Matthew 28. We'll get to that in a little bit. We don't have camps. We have one story. And this story is very simple. God creates the world and he creates it. Good. We got four of you. I haven't done that in a while. I caught you off guard. God creates the world and he creates it. Good. He creates it good. He said, man, this is so good. Have you, ever met a, have you ever met someone that said, that, that didn't like someone but said they were good? No, you know, very, not very much. You don't see a big picture of a God that's angry at you. If he can start the whole world with, man, this is awesome. This is awesome. I love this. And he creates the world, he creates it good. So he creates you, he creates the world with deep down inside of it inherent worth and value. That's why whenever you lock eyes with anybody in the room, you are declaring that they have been created in the image of God. When you lock eyes with someone in the world, you're not locking eyes with someone that God didn't create. Everyone you lock eyes with is created in the image of an all-powerful, triune, omnipotent, omnipresent, sovereign, holy God. Every single one of you has been created with inherent worth and value, so you can't let anyone stomp on that, but you can't yourself dare to stomp on that in someone else. The image of God is baked into each and every one of our DNAs, starting in our brains, working down our, our, our spine, into our organs. It's all wrapped into our DNA, the entire thing that God creates you and it says, man, this is good. But there's this moment that God and us get separated And it's when humans decided that they could create for themselves what only God could create for them. It's this this detrimental moment in the story when, when we believe that God is holding out on us. And it's in that moment that God can't be connected to that level of imperfection. When you want to sit in your own seat You want to sit in the throne of your own heart. It separates us from God, and that's what theologians call the fall. The fall. And what enters into that world is this, at that moment in Genesis 3, is this thing called sin. Sin breaks everything. And I've talked to you about this before, and some of you, this is like old hat for you. Some of you, this is new. Sin is not just the acts that you do. Sin now is the way that we interact with the world. It broke everything. Not just an action, but systemically we're engaging with a world affected by sin. That's why when we look around the world, nothing should surprise us because we know what broke it. And so sin breaks everything. And now what we do, we have this gap between us and God. And for years and years and years, we've been in a phase called the struggle the struggle, 
where we are longing for what God created in us in Genesis chapter one. We long for the image of God in us, but we all have a broken image of God because of sin. And so we're longing for this world that was once perfect but is no longer active in us. We're longing for this world that's just, and inside of us it's, it's just pulsing for us to pay attention to it, for us to engage it, for us to desire it, and that desire is coming uh, in the form in the person named Jesus. See, the struggle is this moment where we're understanding the ache of the world. And this is the moment, I think, where we have an answer that, that really stands apart from everyone and everything else. When, when you interact with people in a, a coffee shop, when you interact with people on the side of a, of a soccer field or a baseball field, when you interact with people um, in the, I don't know, the, wherever club you're in, if you, you go to the Rotary Club, you go to the Glee Club, you go to whatever you go to, every one of the people that you interact with that is not connected to God has an ache that just simply hasn't been satisfied. This is, where, this is where we've had some good conversations uh, about, uh, with Steve about covering your bases. Covering your bases. If you want to find out the ache of someone that you're talking to, you need to cover your bases. First base is a relational ache. Someone's got a marriage issue. Someone's got a parent issue. Someone's got a kid issue. Did I cover every issue yet? We have relational issues. Man, God cares about them. He cares about great relationships. That's why in, in May and June, we're gonna do a, a marriage series because I believe that God cares about that. But, but people, when they're in these deep relational aches, they'll often try to go to something. They'll try to engage someone. Say, God, there's something feels out of whack in my life. We can often teach them about who Jesus is in those moments. Some, some of us have physical aches. We have a job loss. We have a, a disease. We have health issues. And it feels like every day is the same day that nothing else could break from that. And, and Jesus will interrupt that. Some of our friends have global aches. Some of us, have, they have aches where, where literally uh, the world, they're saying certainly the world, there's more to our life that we can do, that we can actually have purpose in this world, that we can create water wells, that we can dig water wells for people, that we can do, uh, you know, we can provide AIDS, disease, uh, the AIDS shots for people. We engage with, I had a friend in high school that was like this. Not a religious bone in her body, but man, she wanted to solve the AIDS epidemic and started a whole nonprofit when she was in college. I mean, that person would make a great Christian, is what I say. You got global aches. They talk about a God that cares about the globe in the same way. It's not right that people go to bed hungry and can't drink water that doesn't make them sick. And but home base is eventually this idea where you say, there's a spiritual ache. Every one of those aches lead back to a broken image of God within us. Our relationships are hurting. We are engaged in a world that's, that's hurting. We, we have these aches because we're longing for a world that was once perfect and it's found in God. 
And inside of you is pulsing this idea that certainly the world can be restored. Certainly the world can be fixed. And so in that gap, we keep putting things to try to help it. And the only thing that solves that gap, that completes that gap, is when Jesus comes down and dies. It's when the Bible says that the veil splits in two. When the veil splits in two, we have now access to a God that we, didn't know, we did not previously have access to. And what Jesus begins to do is redeem all of the aches that we have from the broken image of God in us. Jesus is the solution. He is the substitutionary atonement for you theologians that that if, if, if he is the gap filler. He is the redeemer. What I love about this is, is that when you are talking to someone, when you, once you understand their ache and once you get where they're at, you can provide the answer in Jesus and see the redemption that he begins to do as you do that, as you, as you, as you uh, share, with, with, uh, share them, share with them the answer in Christ. And a perfect example is the book of Ephesians. Now, the book of Ephesians is uh, written to a church that was literally in the city that had the most, that was the leading source of slavery in the first century. And the reason why they were the leading source of slavery in the first century is because uh, they, were, they had this mountain. And that in a culture where everyone was obsessed with the body, if you were born with some sort of a defect, the parents would take their little baby and they'd bring him up to the top of this mountain and leave him there and come back down. And it was a leading source for slave owners to go, I'm going to go raise someone and then sell them off later. And Paul writes the book of Ephesians to the people that are in this city who are slaves. They got the slavery understanding working in the background. And he starts off with this idea that we all are adopted into God's family. And in order to be adopted into God's family, you need to have a public display that this person is mine, that this child is mine. And adoption in the first century could not be reversed. You could disown your own kid, but you could not disown your adopted kid. And it was this public display and Paul's writing this story of a man named Jesus that walked up to the top of a hill and died a death and resurrected so that he could adopt them and call them his own. For those people with slavery working in their background, understanding their own history, understanding their own past, they hear about a man named Jesus that's going to reverse the idea of slavery in that city. Think there'd be some redemption in that. If we know this to be true. We know about Jesus because he is constantly solving these aches with his redemption. Many of you are in here because of the same redemption. You came in here with your own aches. You came in here with your own issues. You came in here with your own stuff. And what I love about the foot of the cross is that it's level and you bring all of your stuff there and you just take your backpack, unload it there, and Jesus begins to redeem it. 
How many have backpacks this morning? Can I get an amen? Come on now. Jesus is constantly redeeming, bringing us closer to Christ. And our natural desire is to try to get away from that, to be our own lords, to be our own kings, to be our self-atoners. And he's bringing us back constantly, saying, no, the better, the better way of life is the Jesus way. The better way of life is the Jesus way. I created you for this. I created you for this. Constantly redeeming our aches as we long for life the way God created it. But we know that it's not just this life. And the story ends with the story of restoration. Revelation in 21 and 22, that what God started on the cross and in his resurrection, he will finish upon his return. What God started in the resurrection, he will finish when he returns. And we're stuck in this gap constantly sorting out our aches and our messes with the redemption of Jesus, constantly teasing out what it looks like to live the better way of life. And we have one story, the story of a God that in himself, in his triune nature, is constantly pursuing us in his love. Yet for us, many times we get stuck. Oh no, this is too much saving. We need to save more. We need to save more. No, 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 we need to serve more. No, 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 we need to serve more, serve more, serve more. And what I love about this is, is a simple question. There's one simple question that can bring this whole thing together. What is in your hand? I bet you didn't see that one coming, right? That's a random question, right? What is in your hand? This is the same question that God asked Moses when he's sitting at the burning bush. And if you remember this from a couple weeks ago, I talked about this story. If not, you can go watch, this, you can go watch it online. But he's sitting in front of the burning bush. And he says, what if I go and do all the things that you've asked me to do? And they say, nah, I don't believe you. No. What if, what if, what if they say that? And he says this simple question, in Exodus chapter 4. Moses, what is in your hand? He's got a, a staff. He's got a cloak. He's got all these things. And slowly but surely, he begins telling them, God tells Moses, all right, here's a tool for you. Here's a tool for you. Here's a tool for you. Every one of us, we have two tools when it comes to sharing the love of God with people. On one hand, it's us, and on the other hand, it's the church. On one hand, it's us, and on the other hand, it's the church. We can meet needs of people. We can meet the needs of people. When you hear the ache, we, a lot of the times, have the resources to solve the ache. It's in the sharing the story of Jesus, it's in meeting the physical need. It's in engaging the marriage relationship. It's engaging these moments with people. But we also have a church that cares about this very much. So he says, what's in your hand? For us, we have these two tools. And often we spend our time thinking, oh, no, we need to save more. Oh, no, we need to serve more. But you know what? Really what God's doing, he's sharing the story of the love of God together. 
And here's how I, this is how I put it together in my head. Jesus serves, you can read this in the gospel, and then he saves. Matthew 25 will, will always lead to Matthew 28. When you stay on Matthew 25, you're really no different than any other community organization in the world. Just flat out. You're just not, you're just not very churchy. But if you're just Matthew 28 and you're telling people all about how they need to become more like Jesus and how they, you're separated from God, you're just probably not very nice. Matthew 25 will always lead to Matthew 28. He saves and then he, well, jeez. That'll come up in evaluation after. <laughs> he serves, and then he saves. Jesus is walking around. You read it in the Gospels. He's walking around in these towns, and he's serving people. He's healing them. He's engaging them, and he's always walking slowly but surely towards Jerusalem, where he eventually will die for the salvation of the world. Matthew 25 always leads to Matthew 28. And if you're a Matthew 25er, you need to be leading people to Matthew 28 or else you're not actually doing the work of the gospel. And if you're doing just Matthew 28, you're probably just hanging out with a few people because there's not many people that want to be around you. You got to do both because Jesus does both. It's not about saving, it's not about serving, it's about loving, and that loving will lead to serving, and loving will lead to saving, because ultimately Jesus is, is, is interested in it all. And so Luke chapter 19, he comes walking into the gates of the city, and they get confronted that this Messiah should be doing what I want. They're restoring the country back to the way it should be and our full universal reign of peace and prosperity will eventually come to arise. And you know what the story right after that is? Jesus looks at the city and weeps. And he says, how badly I want you to know about the peace of God. How badly I want you to know about the peace of God. And so we get confronted on Palm Sunday every single year with the gap of our preferences and God's purpose. And it feels more comfortable to sit in our camps. It feels much more comfortable to sit in our camps and to exercise our preferences. How God has, how God has been engaging with me on this. And he's slowly asking you to put yourself down at the foot of the cross so that he could change you to look more like him. He said, I don't want you to have your preference. I want you to have my purpose. I don't want you to have your preferences. I want you to have my purposes. And how much life is better when you can see the world through the purpose of God. He has given us a major call. He says, go share my love with somebody. Save them with the gospel. Serve them because of the gospel. Love them in the gospel. He's given us this massive call. 
and our preference needs to be sacrificed at the foot of his purpose. Palm Sunday is this idea that his purposes are much better than my preferences. And my camp is nowhere near as important as Christ. And the story of, of love of the Bible is much better than having a narrative that serves my own comfort. And when you pray for one, you will have the demonstration and the opportunity to make a proclamation to do it. And so what is it for you? What is your gap today? Are you a saving camp? Are you a serving camp? Do you say, oh, I'm going to leave the evangelism to the saving camp. I'm just going to work about the serving here. Or do you say, I just all about, all about evangelism, all about making sure people meet Jesus. And you kind of forget to see the image of God in people. Or maybe for you, it's something else. Maybe today, you have some other preference. And you're expecting God, just like they did in Luke 19 on the first Palm Sunday, you're expecting God to show up in a certain way. You're expecting him to do it a way that you decide that it needs to be done. You're expecting God to be someone, and in fact, that someone looks a whole lot like you. And would you today sacrifice that at the foot of the cross? This Holy Week, journey through the life of Christ, sacrificing your preferences for God's purpose.